0: This is Dot, and this is Lindsay, and you're listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people who love manuscripts about the manuscripts they love the most. Today we're sitting down with Yvonne Seal and Heather Waka. Yvonne is an associate professor of history at Geneseo in Western New York. Her research interests center around the history of medieval women and the social history of religion, with a particular focus on the history of the Premonstratention order in 12th and 13th century France. Heather is an honorary research fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research centers around the history of medieval women, medieval maps, and mapmakers, and the material analysis of medieval manuscripts. She is senior co-editor of the Virtual Mappa Project, hosted by the Schoenberg Institute for Manuscript Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Yvonne and Heather, welcome. It's great to have you. And I'm really excited to learn more about this favorite manuscript of yours.
1: Thank you so much Thank for you hosting. For us. having us.
0: Sure. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you want to start today?
1: Maybe we should start by by giving you a little sense of who we are as as scholars Mm -hmm. and as lovers of manuscripts and how we came to um, being the kind of people that will happily nerd out over (laughs) a genre of (laughs) documents like a cartulary, which are definitely not the documents uh, I think that most people think about when they think about medieval manuscripts. They Mm -hmm. think about beautifully illuminated, you know, uh, gold and, and and bright colors and so on. And certainly cartularies tend not to be, um, generally speaking, quite so elaborately decorated. They are more workaday documents. Um, but I think Heather and myself both have a, a, a real love for the kinds of things that they can tell us about how medieval people thought about the world around them and how they tried mm-hmm. to order their their world um, and to think about um, a whole bunch of different social relations and economic relations. Um, so I got my start with working with medieval manuscripts when I was a master's student. I did my uh, master's degree in medieval history at the University of St Andrews in Scotland um, and that master's program is really great at getting you hands-on as a master's student with actual medieval manuscripts um, which is something that um, a lot of people kind of feel fairly early on in their career don't necessarily have the chance to do. Um, But you take classes in paleography, which is the study of ancient handwriting, and they have a wonderful special collections there. So um, every week you, you kind of get thrown into the deep end where you uh, you go down to special collections and you're just given a manuscript and told, spend an hour with it and, and work out what this manuscript wow. is and how to read it. Um, and then you're going to sight read it for um, one of the, the teachers in the class, which was a little bit intimidating, but it, it definitely got you familiar with a bunch of different hands and learning how to read them. Um, and I remember particularly being struck by... Um, one manuscript that they had us work with, which was called uh, The Rule of Kings, which is a late medieval genealogical role. So think about a family tree, but written on a very long um, strip of parchment. And it's a um, family tree of the English monarchy. Um, so very topical for today. We're recording on the, the day that um, England gets a, a new crowned monarch, <laughs> right? Um, so this is is a, a family tree of many of his ancestors. Um, uh, and it's, it's illustrated. So it has little Depictions of each monarch, um, with kind of little lines directing then onto the various different um, family members, and it just was was not the kind of manuscript that I kind of thought that people produced in the Middle Ages, right? I mm-hmm. kind of went into this course with a mental image of a dusty book from a um, Hollywood movie depiction of the Middle Ages, um, and it it just it surprised me and it intrigued me. It made me wonder why make something in a format that didn't necessarily to me seem that um uh, useful or, or that kind of easy to carry around and interact with. So there had to be a reason why you would make something mm-hmm. this way. Who, who is it for? What kinds of people would have read this, would have interacted with it, even just kind of unfolding it and moving through it um, as a student, trying to figure out what it, it said so that I could hopefully report back to my teacher with the right answers in, a, in a, an hour or so. Um, it made me wonder how people had physically interacted with it in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Those were the kinds of things that um, I found myself wondering as a master's student that are very similar kinds of questions that I like to ask about the manuscripts that I work with today. Although, um, as we'll talk about shortly, the, the cartulary manuscript um, that we work with is, is looks very different and is physically very different to that kind of um, that first manuscript that I really got involved with. What about you, Heather? Yeah.
2: Um, <clears throat> The first manuscript I ever encountered was in Litchfield in England for a short time I taught French at a secondary school in Litchfield and I was absolutely enamored by the St. Chad Gospels that are held. Oh, that's a lovely in, manuscript. Yeah, yeah, right? They're mm-hmm. held in Litchfield Cathedral. And at the time, I was not a medievalist. I was not a historian. But yet there was something about them that drew me to them. And I'd go into the chapter room in the cathedral mm, pretty much every week or every two weeks to see if a new page had been turned on the Gospels. Um And so during my time in Litchfield, I actually saw a fair amount of the St. Chad Gospels. But like like Yvonne, I sort of was just like, all these questions, like I wanted immediately to be able to read it. And then Mm -hmm. I was like, well, why would they do this? And why would they do that? And um, its history in and of itself is fascinating as well. So... It just it, it stayed with me for a long time, and when I started to when I went back to graduate school and I um, was doing my PhD in history in medieval history, um, I wrote my first seminar paper on the Saint Chad Gospels and sort of the role that medieval books or even books in general play in supporting political identities because the St Chad Gospels although they're held in Lichfield Cathedral now they have in their margins the earliest evidence of written Welsh and so at some point in their provenance they came they were held in Wales mm-hmm. And so that was my first encounter with um, a medieval manuscript, and it, it has stayed with me. Every time I'm back in Litchfield, I go visit the Gospels again. Um, and in, in terms of uh, Yvonne and I coming into contact with the cartularies, well, that happened when we were both at the University of Iowa doing our PhD, and our advisor was Dr. Constance Berman, who's written a lot about cartularies. And yes. uh, she sort of just slid one underneath. <laughs> she just she I, slid it over on the table and, like, hmm, why don't you? Have I do look not a think. Kiss?
1: I I do not think that Connie has ever been that subtle about cartularies in her life. (laughs) (laughs) Connie's love of cartularies is not a subtle thing. Um, Connie works on um, Cistercians primarily, um, Cistercian women and Cistercians in France and cartularies are very much her thing. Um, I remember probably this was this first seminar that you and I had together in graduate school Heather I think um, was one where she just brought in a whole bunch of 19th century um, printed cartillary editions and just kind of gave them to us uh, and just like what do you make of these (laughs) and we were all a bit flummoxed because um, I I don't think I was super aware of cartilleries as a genre as a you know, baby graduate student my first year in a PhD program and um... Connie was just very clearly like these are the coolest things ever, cartularies and charters. Look at this page where there's a they're talking in so much detail about eels. Um, I think that's that's what I remember. It was something. I was a cartulary from um, the south of France where there was a really in-depth uh, a discussion of eel eel trapping rights. Um, and she got really into it. And I'm not. I don't think right away I had the same. <laughs> love uh for for (laughs) cartularies as she did um i was just like oh this this is a lot to take in and try and work out what's going on here but she very Mm -hmm. definitely trained up all of her graduate students with i think an appreciation for charters and cartularies and what it is that um they contain um Mm -hmm. which might be a good place for us probably to define this a good
0: place to define mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. I'm
1: still a, somewhat of a novice as to different types of medieval manuscripts can you tell us what a cartulary is sure well we can have a try because this is one of those things that uh experts don't necessarily agree on and you can go <laughs> and <laughs> it's one of those things that seems really obvious but there are many nerdy people who have big old nerdy arguments about exactly what a cartulary is um the the most basic way that I can think to describe it is it's a kind of it's a text that is a compilation of pre-existing texts that are arranged at a later point um, by one or more people. Heather would you would you go with me in that description? Going with
2: you yes yes (laughs) going with you
1: yes. (laughs) Um, It it gets complicated because um, there are many volumes around today that scholars would refer to today as cartularies, or if we want to use the the British pronunciation, cartulary, Um, but that were not in the Middle Ages referred to by the people who were making them or cataloging them as cartularium, which is the the Latin word for cartulary. They oftentimes just refer to them as, you know, the book, the book of this abbey, or the book of this church, right? Um, And they are compendiums of Oftentimes copies of um, documents, um, sometimes they are documents to do with property rights or legal rights of some kind. Sometimes they are papal decrees. That's um, very much, as we will see when we dive more in, in, in more detail into the cartillary of Prémontré, um, we'll see a lot of those, and that's primarily what's in there. But you can look at other manuscripts produced in other times and places that will sometimes have... Um, Um, letters might be copied into them or you might have short narrative pieces that frame the history of a a particular time and place Um, and that's a little bit more difficult maybe to try and decide what it is that you um, then call this, is this an, an an anthology? Is this closer to what we might think of as like a, a source book today, right? It's a collection of primary sources with a framing essay, um, or is this just a straight up collection of legal documents? So it, it they can be complicated kinds of sources to look at. Do you have anything to add there, Heather?
2: As far as we know, a cartulary. It may or may not be, uh, it may or may not be um, created or designed for the same reasons, okay? So oftentimes what you're going to run into with a cartulary, and especially cartularies like Yvonne and I work with, there is a whole host of individual parchment charters sitting in an archive somewhere in the institution, and all of a sudden they keep piling up and piling up and the leaders of the institution decide, well, you know, that's a lot of legal documents. And if there were some sort of raid or if there was a fire, you know, would we be able to save all of our very precious legal documents? And so I think sometimes the generative force behind the making of a cartulary is the idea that let's copy all of these most important charters or letters or papal degrees into a book that is a little bit more transportable should we run into some issues Mm -hmm. further down the line. And so I often think that it it doesn't necessarily have to be the case, but I do think that often the documents that are written when they are written the charters themselves can be, you know, over a course of a hundred years, one hundred and twenty years, two hundred years before they get put into a cartulary, which is written then later, in order to make sure that they are all in the same place.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't know and if that cart- helps. Does that help, Lindsay? Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I have a, I have a question, and it might depend on the cartulary, but mm-hmm. is the expectation that the that the institution would keep the documents that were copied or would it be a thing where we don't have enough space. So we're going to get rid of these and we're just going to have the cartulary as the main source, or does it kind of matter? Or do we know?
2: I think, I think both, to be honest, Mm -hmm. I think both, I think originally, if you're making your cartulary, you're making a cartulary, um, and you're also keeping the original documents because there was a very strong sense that the original document was the legally binding document, right? And that the cartulary right. copy was somewhat of a lesser document. Mm-hmm. However, I think as the centuries passed, in many cases, yeah, an institution would say, "Hey, we don't need these anymore. We have our cartulary, and so we don't. We can get rid of them." Um, mm-hmm. There are very few institutions. We Ivan and I look particularly at France, and um, there are very few institutions, religious institutions from the 12th, 13th century in France, that still have any sizable archive of charters left. So many times, what you're ending up with is the cartulary, in order, you know, as your as as your source as your your documentary record for an institution. Well, you yeah, want to I add anything we'll... there, Yvonne? <laughs> um,
1: I, I I would say that, um, yes, there is a sense that the original is oftentimes um, um, thought of as more important by the uh, either their contemporaries, the, the people in the Middle mm-hmm. Ages who are using these, or later people um however Mm -hmm. there is also sometimes a sense that the um the text of the agreement is a record of the agreement and the agreement is kind of formed through kind of people shaking on it right in the moment um so Mm -hmm. today we tend to think of um i don't know if you you get married or you you buy a house right the the moment at which that becomes legally valid is the moment that you are signing the document, right? You're mm-hmm. putting your signature mm-hmm. on it. That's not quite how things work in the Middle Ages, or I think that's that's kind of not necessarily the sense we have of how they're thinking about these things. The text of a charter, say, right? So a, a single page record of a, a land transfer or the creation of a property right or so on. Um, that's kind of, the physical record of the agreement that has already been made probably in person. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's also something to think about. It was, it would
2: have been read out loud and and the parties would have agreed to it. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. So I think that's, that's one additional important thing for us to keep in mind that there is a slightly different kind of, um, slightly different mental order that medieval people have in terms of, which which comes first right it's kind of a chicken or an egg thing Um, i think most people today would say well even if you have kind of agreed with someone that yeah i'm gonna buy the house from you until your signature is on that document right that's not really a legally binding agreement i mean i'm I'm not a lawyer so don't take legal advice from me but that's (laughs) that's my general understanding um whereas medieval people i my sense is might have thought of like well well you agreed on your honor right you agreed on your oath to enter into this this undertaking and when we are writing it down we are we are recording that that transaction um that agreement that we have reached so i, I think that's that's something that's important when thinking about charters and and cartularies um and the relationship of the originals and the copies to one another and the the thinking that lay behind how people understood how these documents worked in the first place. What are they there for? Um, And that also ties back to that previous thing I mentioned that people disagree about what a cartillary is and how to define it. There is also some disagreement Mm -hmm. about how exactly these cartularies were used. Um, as Heather said, one of the theories is this idea of, of preservation, right? That maybe the original copies are old and they're tattered. Um, something has happened to them. Um, you know, rats do eat <laughs> parchment. So sometimes <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they can vanish in that way, right? So you might want to preserve things by copying them into one single volume. Um, you might want to be trying to make things more easily searchable. Um, we certainly mm-hmm. do have evidence for um, an archival organization system at Premontre based mm-hmm. on surviving charters. Um, and Heather's done a lot of great work on trying to mentally reconstruct what the, the order that was used at, at Prémontré must have been like. Um, but having things in an indexable book that you can just flip through mm-hmm. um, might make it easier to find and think about things. Um, some people have suggested that it was, it was kind of a... a a show-off move to be able to mm-hmm. copy everything into a cartulary, and then you've got a legal dispute, right? Some some landowner says, hey, they, this this abbey is working this land and it says that my grandfather gave it to them back in the day, but I don't think that really happened and I'm going to bring you to court and sue to get this this land back, right? It was really impressive to be able to walk into the courtroom and thunk your big cartulary <laughs> down onto the table and be like, look at all of these land rights that we've got in this, big ancient uh, book of, of rights and privileges that we, we can bring forth. Because certainly, I mean, with the, the cartelier Premontre that we work with, like you you know that when you are holding it, it might not be the absolute biggest medieval manuscript out there, but when you pick it up and you carry it around, you are you are aware that you are holding a big um slab of wooden boards and parchment. Um so it's it's weighty, right? It is it is an example of book, the book as a symbol, the book As an object Mm -hmm. that has a history and a weight and a presence in its own right, that is as important, um, I think, oftentimes in the history of cartularies as the text that's on the page. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do we have some photos that we're going to be able to share with our with our listeners on our
1: yes, we do. Uh, Yes. Let me uh, pop yes, this I into can. our chat links here, um, so yeah. it has been um, digitized. the The manuscript that we focus on of the course. most is the uh, Cartulaire premont Um and I will pop it into the chat here. So it has All been right? um, beautifully digitized. Um, Ooh. in Paris, isn't it? Ooh, nice and beautiful and lovely to work with. Um, <laughs> yes. So,
0: it is big it i can tell it's big because i open up a, I opened up an opening at random and i had to zoom way in so i could see the text because it is large chunky boy
1: (laughs) it is a chunky boy so one of uh one of the things that that was great was having this to to work with um it I think only became available right a couple of years after we started our work am i correct yeah. in thinking that heather yeah so yeah. initially we um we were just going and working with it um in person but um this is a manuscript that we became aware of because it was actually useful for both of our dissertation projects um we didn't plan it that way <laughs> it's just um how it worked out um so we were both working with with connie berman as we said earlier on um, our doctoral dissertations and Connie's expertise lies in in France um, and I when I when I got through my uh, comprehensive exams which are a set of exams that you take as a PhD student preparing to write your dissertation um, I most people kind of either come into the PhD program with a sense of what they want their PhD dissertation to be on, or they come through the other side of their comps exams with a specific sense of what they want their dissertation to be on. And I I came through with a set of questions that I thought would be really interesting to think about, but I didn't necessarily know where to go to think about them and um, I, I went and, and met with uh, Connie and I said you know here are these things that I would like to think about and I would like to do them um, on medieval women but I don't know where to go um, and and she just kind of sat there and stared at the ceiling for a minute or two uh, while knitting which is an extremely Connie way of thinking through and processing things and um, she eventually said to me mm, the pre-monster tensions go away and look at them. No one's really looked at them before. See what you find. Um, and with that, I went to France. <laughs> and uh, I had not, I don't think, really heard of, of them as an order before and found mm. that, um, yes, they are a very important monastic order from the Middle Ages that at least in English language scholarship have been um, relatively understudied. So it's not that... I have. Them, but
0: I have not that, heard of them before so
1: right right which is this weird thing when you look back at the actual 12th century monastic reform movement they get going pretty much around the time the same time as the cistercians and everyone has heard Mm -hmm. of the cistercians right Mm -hmm. um like that's that's just a a name that people know about in terms of reformed monasticism um they get going around the same time and the primos at least in the 12th and into the early 13th century are, are probably number two right behind the cistercians as a monastic order in terms of number of houses right across Europe, they have got houses from the west of Ireland, all the way over as far east as Jerusalem. They have got houses in Spain all the way as far north as Norway, right? This huge wow. span of territory. Um, but they, they kind of go into somewhat of a decline in the later Middle Ages and into the early modern period. So there are comparatively few of them today. Um, today, the order mostly mm-hmm. goes by the Norbertines um, in, in honor of Saint Norbert of Samson, who was their founder. Um, but they they Kind of just they haven't had like the modern hype men <laughs> if i can use the slang term in the same way that cistercians have had right so that there are more yeah. cistercians there are more members of the order kind of who've been out there writing their history and documenting it and getting it out there and i feel like that hasn't happened to the same extent um with the pre so heather and i are kind of on a on a roll with um our our project looking at the culture of to try and get more people looking at this order because the premonstratensians were out there and they were doing a um, a lot of stuff in the 12th and early 13th century. They were founding houses, they were theologians, they were running hospitals, they were um, involved in many, many different aspects of medieval life, but um, again, comparatively understudied. So Heather and I uh, both found ourselves drawn in in different ways, and Heather can talk about her own doctoral project, but we found ourselves drawn to this manuscript. I was interested in looking at the Premonstratensians in particular, not just because they are this comparatively understudied order, but because of the role of women within that order, um, or the the traditional historiography about women in that order. If you look the Premonstratensians up on um, pretty much any, I think, general textbook about medieval religion, or... I don't know, probably Wikipedia <laughs> um, also, I, I think still says this, um, that they were kind of known for uh, being particularly not down with women and that um, while the order in the first 70 75 years or so of of its existence had female members Um, the men in the order were not happy with this and they appealed to the pope and in 1198 the pope lets them kick all of the women out of the order Um, and so initially Mm. i i kind of came across them and i'm like oh there's something to write here in terms of like why why would you do this like yeah the cistercian men weren't necessarily always super keen on the women but they never kicked the women out so what's (laughs) What's going on here, right? If, if you are more misogynist than Bernard of Clairvaux, that's <laughs> that's a lot, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I decided that I would I would go and I would um, see what's involved here and look at the surviving records, um, particularly the cartier of trade the mother abbey of the order. Um, but the more that I started looking at the actual documents, the more I found that there were communities of premonstertensian women in France and elsewhere in Europe that were around long after 1198, um, Mm -hmm. that there are definitely many communities in France that we can trace into the 13th, 14th, I mean, even into the the 15th century um, and a little bit beyond. There's a community at Bonnoy in uh, northern France, not so far from Prémantré itself. You've got a community at La Rochelle um, in western France that survives into the 16th century. Uh, There's a community at Terre in in Burgundy, um, right in the centre of France, that survives into the um, very early years of the 17th century so i just Mm -hmm. kind of kept getting intrigued like okay on the one hand yes there clearly was a desire um to kick some of the women out of the order or at least not to accept new women into the order on the other hand very clearly there were women who were just like sure okay but i'm going to continue doing my thing (laughs) right regardless Mm -hmm. of what the men have to say so i i just got really curious as to why has there been this this disjuncture or this difference between the standard his, um, historiographical narrative and what you actually find when you go and you look at the the, the actual history right And so
0: mm-hmm.
1: to try and answer those questions you do what any good historian should do right which is go back to your primary sources and revisit them um, And so the de Premontre was one of those, for me. And that's how I ended up um, working with it a great deal. Heather also worked with it a great deal for her dissertation, but she came to it by a a slightly different path with fewer nuns, but just as many women.
2: (laughs) No nuns. I don't do nuns. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Yeah. And I think the, the, one of the key things here is that in our efforts to sort of make known or you know elucidate uh, illuminate the premonstratensian order at, in the middle ages and how important it was i think that's where this cartulary plays its major role because the cartulary of premontre is a collection of charters that was made in about 1239 1240 from the abbey of premontre which is the founding abbey of the premonstratensian order and so mm-hmm. that's kind of where the manuscript sits in terms of its importance and its role in um, in promoting or in uncovering, you know, more about the pre- premonster tensions and, and has never been edited. And that's why Yvonne and I took it upon ourselves to do an edition of it as well, which is coming out in August 2023. We can talk about that later. (laughs) (laughs) In any case. In any case. um, Yeah, I mean, I came to the Cartillary of Prémontre for my dissertation as well. It was one of three case studies basically, where I was looking at um, I mentioned earlier that um, in France, especially in, well, in France there are not a lot of uh, records sources where you've... in France, there's not a lot of institutions, religious institutions, where you've still got that archive of charters and a cartulary that survive. And so my interest was in looking at that transition from a set of archives, a bunch of little charters on parchment, into a cartulary and the choices that the people at whatever re- religious institution were making in order to choose and decide what's going in the cartulary because they couldn't write it all in. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> in my dissertation, I had three case studies, one of which was Prémontré because for Prémontré, there is a sizable archive of uh, original charters that still exists. And um, mm-hmm. I was looking at the charters, which had lots of women in them, performing mm-hmm. economic activities, all sorts of activities. And then the cartulary, which had much less representation of women.
0: Oh, interesting. And so so they was, didn't copy yeah. all of those over, nope. huh?
2: No, nope. hmm. they chose. And the ones that they chose didn't necessarily have the women and the, ext- the extent of their participation, the extent of their participation, as Yvonne was talking about before, in that mm-hmm. actual physical, in-person transfer of property when everybody's in the room and everybody needs everybody's agreement that, yes, this is all okay because, you know, I uh, this property actually is part of my dowry, but it's okay, I'll say yes to it, and uh, that needs to be written down. Right. So um, there may be like four or five different or six different charters written around one transaction because everybody needs to make their voice heard and make sure that their wishes, their thoughts and um, agreement are written down. And then if you've got your six charters, why write copy six into that cartulary if it takes so much time? Why not just do one? Well, which one shall we take? Let's take the one that has the archbishop as at the top right. of it, you know, and then the women are pretty much non existent as they right. write it up.
1: Yeah, it's it's yeah. the kind of selection process that goes into deciding which of your 678 right originals is the one that gets copied into the cartulary is one of those funnel points right that isn't it's not deliberately setting out to omit the women, right? You, you're not gonna go mm-hmm. back and find like a mustache twirling medieval monk who says, ha ha ha, through my documentary and archival practices, here I am writing women out of history, right? That's that's not what is happening. But through just the kind of the, the ranking of, generally speaking, certain men and certain men in public positions, ahead oftentimes of women who are involved in the transactions you you are selecting a lot of um the women's uh, own charters out right of the historical mm-hmm. record you're winnowing them out um, and that is something that tells us a lot about how medieval people thought about the world right um mm-hmm. the kinds of innate on questions, assumptions that they had about power and prestige um, and it's also something that kind of has informed and shaped subsequent scholarship ever since this point in time so one of the other reasons why I think Heather and I found the Premontre cartillary so interesting um, when we were starting to research it and to research how people had thought about it over time was the fact that you have got all of these later um, people writing about it, or cataloguing it, or just writing about kind of the history of Premontré in general, who either mm-hmm. stopped at the cartulary as their source to work with because, well, everything that's important is in here, right? Like they've they've copied over the the key things, so we don't need to go back and look at the original charters, and and they're mm-hmm. only working with that kind of winnowed version of history, um, or um, people who are cataloguing. Um, particularly in the late 19th and early 20th centuries are making certain kinds of assumptions about how they catalogue, right? And who ends up um, in the the holdings. Remember when I first went to France on research and I was looking through a 19th century catalogue of original charters and and I was looking for women and I wasn't finding any and I was getting a little bit anxious. Like, is my dissertation doable? <laughs> are there any women who are doing anything? Should I should I just back up and go home now because I'm I'm not finding anything? Um, and then I gradually kind of came to the realization that no, there are women who are featured in these um, acts in these charters who are doing things, but the catalogers didn't necessarily think them important enough to include in their 19th mm-hmm. century catalogs. So if you if you take those catalog entries as wholly representative of the historical importance um, of a document, you can overlook things. Um, so that's okay. um, a- another, I think, way that Heather and I were approaching this manuscript when we were looking at it is it tells us something about the Middle Ages. It also tells us something about the historiography um, of the, the Premonstratensian order, right? How later people have thought about um, the, the Premonstratensians and their history or how they've thought about um, cartularies in general.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's as much a historiographical study as it is the history, because you have to take into account how people, since it, these charters were originally made, how these other people have, have treated them through the, the lenses of their own time.
1: Exactly. I think in so many yeah. ways, um, we as medievalists working in the 21st century are still grappling with the legacy of 19th century medievalists and how mm-hmm. they thought about, you know, women's agency, women's power, how women acted in society. And there's been you know, a lot of scholarship in the last 20, 30, 40 years, you know, that's really been trying to... Um, push back against that narrative right um heather tanner's work or amy livingston's work right um our own advisor connie berman really trying to get people to say okay how much of what we know about medieval women is actually just what we think we know about medieval women and what happens if we actually go back and reread the, the sources closely and carefully, right? Um, so the kinds of sources that um, we will oftentimes refer to as documents of practice, right? So as opposed to, say, idealizing kinds of documents like law codes that tell you how people were supposed to behave, documents of practice mm-hmm. like a charter, like a cartulary copy of a charter are telling us the things that they were doing. Um, and so that can, can complicate uh, what's going on here. So Heather and I both ended up Working with the Cartulary of Prémontré because it fit with some of our our respective and overlapping subject areas and, and time periods and, and geographical areas, because it had this nice set as well for Heather of surviving originals that she could compare to and it worked nicely with what she was doing. Um, but there were also some kind of gaps and and holes, right, um, in terms of the surviving sources. So while Premon does have a number of surviving acts and charters, we have a a, a not necessarily as as great as we would like sense of where the archives would originally have been kept or um, what the archives storage room would have looked like or what their library in general at the Abbey looked like in the Middle Ages or into the early modern period. because sometimes they get burned down. (laughs) Warfare Mm -hmm. happens in northern France in the Middle Ages. So in the 15th century, there's a big fire that takes place at the abbey that destroys a a number of of documents and holdings. They try to rebuild it. um, And there is a major um, attempt at reconstructing the abbey in the 1600s, there or thereabouts, that also removes a lot of the medieval structure. So when you go to Prémontré today, you will see a very large building that's there, but it's mostly early modern and there's very little Mm. of the medieval structure that remains there. Um, And then there's a kind of a further wave of destruction that happens during the French Revolution. The French Revolution takes out an awful lot of um, the medieval heritage of France, certainly in terms of the written texts. Um, The Abbey at Prémontré itself um, goes through very various different phases um, of use. There's a a period in time where it's a glass factory, gets turned into a glass Hmm. factory. um, And then I think something goes wrong with the making of glass and the glass factory blows up and takes out a big portion of the surviving church on the site. Uh, Don't don't set up a glass factory in a historic building. I think that's a lesson that we can learn from that. Um, And uh, it later then gets, I think, briefly turned into an orphanage. So very, very haunted vibes. Um, And today it's used as a hospital. So it's still an active working institution and you can't really go in and visit it very freely, right? So we don't necessarily um, have the best sense, as I said, of like the physical space where the monks uh, of Prémontré would have been working. Um, And then the fact that the French Revolution happens means that pretty much all of their holdings get dispersed, oftentimes fairly widely, across uh, France. So maybe, Heather, you can say more about how it is that you have get the scattering of these medieval manuscripts in the French Revolution and why we end up doing a lot of work in the cartier of of Prémontré sitting in the middle of a small-town public library in northern
2: France. Well, the general um, regulation that happened after the revolution was that these institutions being religious institutions were meant to be shut down. And so then there was a problem as to what were people supposed to do with all of their library holdings. Mm-hmm. And it was at this time then that the government actually started to set up a network of city libraries, municipal public libraries, to and they just started shuffling all of the religious institution manuscripts into these small um, little municipal libraries. And then the archives went to um, the actual archival, the charters, anything that was like loose leaf and part of an act- the actual archives, those went to a different place. And for a long time, the archives of Prémontre were housed in the cathedral in Lens. Um, whereas the manuscripts, the actual books were housed and held in the small little municipal library of Soissons, which is not far from Prémantré. Um And so that's this is why it was interesting in studying this manuscript that we were in, a uh, small little municipal library, in Soissons, which is not a, you know, super well-known town in (laughs) northeastern France. And um, they would bring us the manuscript, and we would open it up. And there were a couple of summers where we were working there and taking photos of it and um, looking at it, you know, for day after day after day after day. And uh, it was fascinating because um, the public would just kind of come by and say, oh, what's that? you know and you would talk to them and say that it's a it's a book from the 12th or 13th century and on the one hand they were like oh and then on the other hand they were like of course we have a history you know and of course we're going to have medieval manuscripts in our library um and so it was just it was a very interesting uh moment because it we, the public are just walking by as we're studying this and looking at it and asking us questions which i think is fascinating in and of itself um and the the library at Soissons holds a fantastic collection of medieval manuscripts some illuminated some not just really beautiful and uh, then the other parts of what we were looking at were in the archives and now the department of the the uh, archive Départemental of Lon in this area they have their own building they have their own you know they have their own um vaults for everything and um and so we had to go there as well to see a large majority of the uh chargers the original chargers when we were looking at them But not all of them are there, because some of them will have gone to other departmental archives because of the structure that was set up, the administrative structure that was set up during and after the French Revolution, so that it meant that some of these charters that had attachments to certain uh, houses that were dependent on Prémontré went to a different departmental archives because... That's where that house was at the time that this administrative boundary was set, right? So, and it's
1: it's not always um, like th- there was a system in place, but um, as you guys know well, I'm sure, if, yeah. because there's a no, system in it, place, does not mean that yeah. it always gets followed. And, and that was the um, general rule. Yeah. yeah. So, so there are also a bunch of them that just like end up in the hands of private collectors for a period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are also kind of uh, difficult to to trace. Um, So we were really relying a lot on the work of um, various different archivists and and um, other people who work in special collections who had put together really useful tools right for trying to Mm -hmm. to track down some of these things or who had published um, previous works that we were able to to use and to draw on to try and trace everywhere that the original documents had had ended up so like, shout out to Jean-Christophe, our friend in the um, archives in Law, who was um, a really great help. He, he's also a trained medievalist and was, I think, super excited that we showed up because a lot of people go there to do their family tree or, or World War One history, which is also really important and really valuable. But then we showed up and he was like, oh, you're, you've come to like, nerd out with me <laughs> about medieval things, <laughs> which was always really fun. I mean, he, he said it in a much more elegant way. He's French. He, he doesn't yeah. nerd out but, <laughs> I felt it in my heart. We had a connection. (laughs)
2: Um, I was just wondering, um, so maybe it would be good to just chat a little bit about the cartillary itself, because we've talked a Mm -hmm. lot around it. And I'm thinking one of the reasons why we wanted to be on this (laughs) podcast, we were so excited, is because we have then spent the last six years doing an edition of this cartulary, mm-hmm. We both encountered it in our dissertations and now, then, then we decided, well, let's do a dissertation. It's not been published, it's an important work, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, in so doing, Uh, we found out a lot about this cartillary. And it's, it's pretty exciting. And so I wouldn't mind switching or talking a little bit more about that. But I'm also super fascinated by any questions that you have so far, any questions that you are thinking about.
0: So I would, I would love to, to sort of take some time to look at to look mm-hmm. at the manuscript a little bit and talk about yep. how it looks. Sure. Um, I don't think I have any questions. Like you guys have done just an amazing job setting out the context and the history. I feel like I've learned, like I'm a little overwhelmed with like how much I have learned <laughs> in the past, you know, 50 minutes that we've been. Um,
1: we did promise you nerding.
0: think you did. You did. I am. I am satisfied. It is a ten. Ten out of ten on the nerd scale. I'll take I don't know, a Lindsay, deep
2: breath because there's more to come. <laughs> there's mom. more to come. I love it.
0: I love it. Lindsay, do you have? Do you have every, any questions right every now? Every question I thought of got answered before I had the chance oh to gosh. ask it. Oh my god. So I'm. I'm really excited to take a look at the actual manuscript. Yeah. And I would love to know mm-hmm.
1: about the interesting things you found in it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, where do we want to
1: start? Uh, well, let me see. Um, do we want to look kind of, uh, kind of generally at the structure of the manuscript and and how it's put together, and talk about kind of the binding and the way it looks physically as an object? Is that a good place to start? Sure.
0: Sure. I would love to start there. I'm very interested yes. in that.
1: Absolutely. Okay. So if you click through to the, the link that I dropped in our chat there, um, mm-hmm. this brings you through right to our beautifully digitized manuscripts. Um, very uh, big thanks to the people at the ERHT in, in Paris who have digitized it. It is the ERHT, right, Heather? Have I just made a big faux pas? Um, I think it's the ERHT.
2: I think it is. It is. It is. It yeah. is. Oh, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole project where they were um, they were taking manuscripts, old manuscripts from mm-hmm. these small libraries in France and digitizing them. Okay.
0: Yeah, so and the, I'll we, provide both a link and any page or any photo that we talk about, I will also download and put in the um, Sure, love it. great.
1: Yeah. yeah. So this is beautifully digitized by the IRHT, the Institut d'Israël et Recherche de Textes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got that, I yeah. think, correctly. Um, that is a French state body that is just kind of in charge of looking after the country's manuscript heritage from the Middle Ages. Um, Because even though there is a a great loss of manuscript heritage in the course of the French Revolution, they still got a lot. There is a lot to look out for. Um, So they have got two separate sites at at Paris and Orleans, where they um, preserve and they, they research these manuscripts and so on. So they digitized this, they did a beautiful job. If you look at those first three manuscript images, those are showing you the binding um, of mm-hmm. the manuscript. So in many manuscripts that you look at from the Middle Ages that people like to talk about, they're oftentimes beautiful covers, right? On the the books, um, they're they're jeweled, they're decorated, they are um, in some ways um, just kind of fancy and ornamental objects. This is not a fancy and an ornamental cover. There's a little bit of decoration, right? That you can um, see has has been done to it. Um, if you look really closely, right, you can kind of see how it, there are these kinds of incised. Lines on the cover in that lozenge. Is that the, the shape that I'm thinking of? Right. Mm-hmm. But it's, this is not fancy, right? This is not a prestige cover. This is a very workaday cover, right? but um, it has something to tell us as an object. This is not the original cover. This is a later rebinding. And this sometimes happens over the course of the Middle Ages. Maybe you decide that you do want to um, elevate the binding of your manuscript, or maybe you decide that, um, that it has been damaged the something happens to the original cover and you decide that you want to change it up so we do have a sense that you know this is the a, a later rebinding um that it was kind of done we think maybe for certain reasons um, and that as part of the binding process the manuscript itself its physical structure changed a little bit heather do you want to talk about this because i think you were the one that was maybe the, the most hands-on in figuring out that particular aspect of the manuscript's history.
2: Yeah, hmm. I don't know. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll say that this is a binding, right? This, this is a binding that is not contemporary to when the manuscript was made. Um, and so at some point before this binding was put on is the moment at which There was a a small reorganization of the manuscript itself. And if we look at the folio one, basically, to folio five, these are folios that originally sat at the back of the manuscript. Oh, interesting. So as a collation, what ends up happening is if you go to folio six, that was the original beginning, because that's where it says, that's the enchippet. And so what you've got now sitting at the front of this manuscript is three of the four original bifolios that were sitting at the back in one choir, which is a, a sort of a section of pieces of parchment folded in half. And what ended up happening was... This manuscript was put together. It started with the incipit, choir by choir as it went through. And then the last choir, there was a bit of a hiatus in production, uh, probably around 1238. And then the last choir itself was written and added in about 1239, 1240. And the last choir was added, we believe, because of some of the content that the charters include. And this content had to do with a huge general assembly that took place that sort of realigned uh, premonstratention abbeys in Germany to those in France and sort of reinstated the Abbey of Prémontré as the sort of mother abbey for the entire order. So obviously... The fact that we have these charters in there meant that there had been dispute going on beforehand, and that the church in Magdeburg, in particular, was interested in having its own liturgy, it was a little bit more interested in having its own um, dress codes, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and this was causing tension. Yes, there was a big council, it got realigned, everybody was okay with it these, there's probably what, there's four charters, five charters written in this section that deal with the outcome of that council. And originally, again, it was sitting at the end because the council took place in 1239. However, at some point before this binding was put on, three of the four big folios were uh, repositioned to the beginning of the cartulary And Yvonne and I believe that that is because there was a very um, at the time that it was being that this binding was being put on or even earlier. It was very important that a person who had access to this book would see that Prémontré, the Abbey of Prémontré, where this book was being held, was the mother abbey and was the primary abbey of the order
1: ties back really right. to what we were saying earlier about how the, the cartulary is an object that is important mm-hmm. as much as the text contained within it is important. So for some reason, the the people at Prémontré who are doing this think it's important to have these texts kind of up front and center when you open it, bang, this is what you are confronted with. Prémontré is the mother abbey of the order and it's the one that should have the, the most power over the mm-hmm. other abbeys in the order. This was, as Heather said, like not uh, a foregone conclusion. There's a slightly complicated history with Premontre where Norbert of Santon, who is um, traditionally regarded as the founder of the Premonstertentians, he spends a period of time at Premontre and then he leaves. He gets appointed Archbishop of Magdeburg in what is today kind of East Central Germany and and he moves there um, because this is kind of right on the eastern border of Christian Europe at this point in time, and he feels like he should be going out and converting the the heathens further east, right, is how he would definitely have mm-hmm. seen it. So he leaves and he goes and he spends the rest of his life essentially in, in Magdeburg as archbishop. And so the, the um, members of the order who are at magdeburg think well no we we are the ones that are more important because norbert spent more time here this is where he died this is where he was really living out his vision we are the ones that should have supremacy and premontre is pushing back against that right so the fact that these charters are selected for inclusion in the cartulary how it gets reordered right all of that mm-hmm. we think ties into this document as an expression or an assertion of power right? That is is coming through here. Um, And that is also something that we can see in terms of how it is laid out more generally, right? So we have got Mm -hmm. these kinds of of documents as expressions of power um, in terms of the, the monastery or the order as members of larger church institutions. But they are also something that tell us a little bit about how the order is thinking of and expressing its power in kind of social and economic terms more specifically or more locally in the region. So if you right. look um, maybe say at what is this 17 recto, um, here you will see the beginning of a section of um, documents and there are a number of these sections throughout the manuscript. Um, and you can tell that you were beginning a new section because that little header right in red that rubric um, on the mm-hmm. top changes but also they very handily and helpfully give us a little table of contents right in terms of what they are mm-hmm. going to be talking about so sometimes these sections are divided up according to who is the person who is um, the, the, the chief mover behind these particular texts so this section is Uh, from the Bishops of Lens, right? I think, yeah, that's the one that we're looking at. Um, But other ones are organized geographically, um, some of the later sections. Mm -hmm. So those geographically organized ones are showing us really how Prémontré existed as a um, a, a landowner, right? As a significant Mm -hmm. social and economic presence in the region of Northern France. Um, That's also something to think about Um, as historians of religion in the Middle Ages or historians of institutions and administrative structures in the Middle Ages. um, As much as monks or nuns try to separate themselves from the world they were also people who had property and and owned things and um, expressed legal rights Um, and those are also things that you can see through these charters.
2: Right Heather? Another way that the cartulary speaks to us about how the abbey perceived itself in its sort of geographical and religious landscape is the way that the cartulary has organized the charters that it has copied into it. And so, what you're going to see is you're going to see at the very beginning, you're going to see a set of papal charters, um, and then you're going to see some of the bishops' charters, especially the Bishop of Lens, because that was the uh, bishop that was most relevant to the Abbey at Prémontré. And then you're going to see a little section with the lords and ladies of Cousy, a very prominent noble family of the area and aristocratic family of the area. And then um, then you See a big shift in their thinking and the way that they're organizing this cartulary, in the sense that they are no longer now privileging the people who are behind the charter, or perhaps the major um, signa, the major writer of the charter, as it were, the major author of the charter. Instead, they're going to look, start looking at the geography now, and sort of it, it creates a sense of uh, Premontre as a landowner and as a very important economic player in. The area. And here you're going to see, of course, you're, when you're looking through the cartillary, you're going to see the, the pieces of land that the Abbey held in the area of Long. Okay, so you're going to see various different houses, this sort of organized according to the house and the different pieces of land and property and vineyards that the Abbey owned, uh, held in terms of these little houses that were part of the Abbey, attached to the Abbey. And so you go through that, and it's really interesting because, and this says something as well about the archives, I think, and, and where the cartillary is being written and who's writing it exactly, because this section that has all of these properties and these transfers of property uh, that have to deal with the area of law the sort of um, region, uh, they they have a very... Specific order, and they and the beginning of each order, the beginning of each section has a table of contents, so it's incredibly well laid out, it's incredibly well organized in such a way that you almost can see the author of the cartulary sort of going to the archives and saying, okay, now I'm going to pull some charters from this dependent house, and I'm going to pull them out today, and I'm going to write them down. And here's my table of contents. Here are the Mm -hmm. copies of the charters that I've chosen, and then put them back in the archives, go to the next section of the archives, pull them out, and do the exact same thing. And the reason why this is so interesting is because this is not what happens with the rest of the cartulary. So Mm -hmm. the properties that they hold in the area of Soissons are very few, where you have hundreds of properties or hundreds of charters representing the area of Lens and the final area of Noyon. The area of Soissons only has like about 29 charters. And they all have to do basically with the house that the Abbey held in the town of Soissons. And it's very interesting because here you're looking at, well, why aren't all these other charters which are in the archives? also copied in the cartillary. They are Mm -hmm. missing. They are not there for a reason. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then you get to Noyon, the final section, the geographical section. And again, it's absolutely fascinating because here, instead of dividing it up with the little properties and the sections and each one having their table of contents, it was almost as if the author of the cartulary was like, oh my gosh, I don't know anything about these properties. They're way over there in Noyon area. All I can do is just take them as a whole. This is what they sent us maybe, or this is what I've got. I'm going to do a giant six folio length table of contents and then just copy them all out. So it's completely, each section is being treated a little bit differently as to how the copies of the charters are going into the cartulary, And I think it's fascinating because I think it says an awful lot about, as I said, we've come to the conclusion that it's being made at Prémontré because this is the section mm-hmm. that is the most specific, most clear, um, most organized, and that it, in doing so, it's And in the, uh, just with the idea that, that this is not happening in the other sections, it's, it's, it makes it all that more important that it is happening in the section of law. And it is privileging these properties in a way. And they are, it is the first section of the three uh, sequential geographic sections. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it tells us a lot about where this is being made and how they see themselves vis a vis their houses, their dependent properties. Um, and and they, you want to add?
1: Well, I, I would say that oftentimes we get um, such a, a clear sense of the kinds of properties that they held, how much impact the, this abbey would have had on the landscape, right? Premontre is this major local landowner and... Um, speaking as someone who uh, comes from a, a country originally from Ireland where you have got this history of large landowning estates, right, that um, generally speaking were owned by people from, of, of English descent, right, um, before independence in the 1920s, that had this kind of certain relationship as oftentimes absentee landlords or landowners, right, to the kinds of people who are living there. It's really interesting for me to think about how, people who lived and worked on the land that was owned by Prémontré might have thought about these these monks who live far away, right, who own this property. Um, because definitely, right, you get this sense that the people who lived near the abbey would have had a strong sense of Prémontré as an institution, and they might have had affection for it. But equally, the people who are living really far away, right, in Soissons or Noyon, or far, certainly far away, according to travel standards at the time, it's always something that I wonder about: is is what did they think of these monks who they had to send their rent to every year? Like, did they did they care? What was their sense of their interaction um, with the abbey? It's it's a difficult, if not an impossible, thing for us to to recover at this point in time. Right? We don't have the sources that will tell us those things, but okay. it is it's one of the kinds of questions that the cartulary makes me ask. Um, Heather and I often talk about how wonderful it is that even after us working for like more than five years on this project, working on on the cartillary edition, that we still find new questions to ask about the people who are featured in this this document, the kinds of lives that they might have led, how they interacted with the Abbey that created it. Um, Because there is very definitely this sense of, you know, there is a lot of administrative oversight. There must have been quite a degree of interaction um, between the certainly at least the people who are drawing up the charters um, and the people who are living on the ground so one of the nerdier things (laughs) that Heather and I have done while in France and, and there's many but um there was like one afternoon, Heather, you remember, we walked around Soissons and we were trying to find mm, the location yeah. of the house that is yes. described, mm. this, this property that they are holding. Um, there's a whole local family who is involved over a number of generations with the the properties that uh, Prémontré has in the town of Soissons. And because at least the core of Soissons has not changed very much in terms of its layout over many centuries, you can pretty much kind of orient yourself geographically and work out where we at least think we've got a fairly good sense of where this house would have stood and the fact that you know it, it's it's just a, a really fascinating thing to be able to stand in a place in the 21st century and look and be like well we think that might be roughly the location of the wall that a bunch of people seven mm-hmm. or eight hundred years ago were fighting over who had the rights to put up this wall or, or not this wall or whose house should be touching the wall um, they, they are small little things but they are are so much part of the texture right of people's lives anyone who's ever had a dispute with a neighbor over um you know the 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 branch of your tree is growing onto my property and it shouldn't be there right can kind of empathize with these medieval people who are Um, getting into kind of disagreements with one another. Um, And that's like one example, but there are so many others in all of these other charters that are copied in here that are telling us something about the kinds of lifestyles that people had, the the kinds of crops that they're growing in the fields, right? So um, Mm -hmm. obviously grain production is a major thing in this period in in time, but um, we've also got like uh, grapes. We know that they're growing grapes. Um, We know that they are, Uh, catching fish right that's a major um thing that they are talking about is water rights and mill rights and who has the rights to fish in a certain mill pond right so that's telling us something about local diets uh even things like how they are referring to the people who live in a place or the fields that they are working um so we have got lots of people who were just identified by a single name but uh, occasionally we get people who have got slightly more um uh, elaborate names that they were referred to so there's a, a maria dicta venetrix who crops up a, a couple of times marie called the huntress like i well,
0: that's nice
1: what was going on with this lady right where's, yeah. where's her Netflix series um is the kind of thing that i wonder You're married um, to robert
0: the huntress
1: maybe she was I think <laughs> but maybe she was out there with her bow and arrow right we we don't yes. quite know right there's yeah. th- there are these names that that conjure up kind of just the sense that there was this whole life story for this person that again we probably will never be able to get at but there is a an um Adele who was called the Saracen Um, which is a term that is used in the Middle Ages to talk about someone of um, Muslim origin or ancestry. It's kind of a a combination ethnic and religious term. Um, Is this because she had ancestry from maybe from Spain or North Africa? It's tricky for us to know. We do know that there were people um, from the Middle East to settle in um, Northern France in the 13th century because Louis IX brings them back uh from one of the crusades that he goes on and he settles them in uh, northern france some muslims whom he persuades to convert to christianity and then he brings them uh to to northern france to settle there now she's a little bit too early to be one of that group but that is the kind of event that shows us it's not beyond the bounds of possibility right for um, someone from that part of the world uh to to end up settling in northern france um equally there's a, a, a meadow that is um part of Premantre is holding at this point in time that's named or is referred to as Mohammed's Meadow. Um, why? <laughs> you know, we, we don't know. Is that just a, a nickname? Is it a, a reference? Or was there a guy called Mohammed who is living in 13th century northern France? Um, that's that's all we have got to go on in terms of evidence. You can't say anything conclusively one way or the other. Um, but it is the kind of thing that just makes you stop and go, huh, okay, Maybe I've got to recalibrate a little bit some of the the assumptions that I might be making right about what the world of these people looked like. What about you, Heather? Any um, favorites of yours that crop up in the the cartulary in terms of? Well, I,
2: I agree with you in that it is fascinating that after six years of working on this, it, you know, we can still sit down and look at a charter, I mean, look at the charter, look at the work that we've done and say, you know, it's the gift that gives on giving. It will always give and more and more because there is, it's just the more you dig, the more you find. And that's true, not only of the textual references, but it's also true of the materiality of the mm-hmm. manuscript. And one of the big things that we found um, working with the material analysis of the cartillary which is something again which is um somewhat understudied uh in the sense that a lot of um a lot of attention goes towards the texts in these cartularies but they themselves are their own books and mm-hmm. they have a maker and they have a reason for being in the order that they are and that parchment has come from somewhere and the ink has come from somewhere mm-hmm. and um, One of my favorite moments was when I was working in the last section and uh, all of a sudden I realized, well, there's these seven charters that have been copied, not once, but twice. Mm -hmm. And this was very odd because I had gotten to know the scribe very well in this cartulary, and this scribe was really for the most part in a meticulous Worker and very took took his job very seriously, and I say his because we believe that the cartulary was made at Prémontré, which at the time was a house of brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as I looked a little further, I realized that the first set of the seven charters uh, in the cartulary itself had a, had two ink spots on it. And I was like, that's interesting. And knowing that we had quite a few of the original charters, I just, it just popped in my head, well, why don't I go check those original charters and see what their state is? Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, when I went to look at two of the original charters that the scribe, the author of the cartulary, would have been looking at as he was copying them into the Mm cartulary, I look and I see these giant. Huge ink stains that are covering like three quarters of the charter. Oh my and so gosh! I think what you then do with that is you ask yourself questions. Well, what's going on here? We've right. got seven charters. There's an ink happening <laughs> that, <laughs> that went on that day in the scriptorium, yes. and yeah. yet they were re and and then they were recopied. You know, maybe like three or four folios later, mm-hmm. but if you, uh, not in the same order.
1: Yeah, if you look at folio ninety six recto in the cartulary images, you can see the the big old ink blotch uh, in the cartulary. Yeah, in the cartulary yeah. itself. Yes. So it's it's clearly was a, a major. Attack. Oh yes, that yep. that scribe had a bad day.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: But it also, then, if you actually work, if you actually um, reverse engineer how that might have happened, then you start to realize that there's an there's probably a process that that scribe was going through that is nowhere else in the text. There's nothing explicit saying this is how I copied these charters into this book. Instead, you're using that material analysis to say, well. You must have had a pile of charters on your left. There must have been a pile as you were copying. You were putting them over onto the right. And um, you were either leaving them face up or face down, depending on where that ink stain was coming from in the original charters. And that something happened to such a degree that you had to take those seven charters, put them somewhere. They come out of the order that you're doing out of the routine and then for some reason they get put back in 3 or 4 days later to be recopied again and it's just it's a it's uh it's a really interesting phenomenon that comes from looking and just observing and just trying to ask questions of what's going on here anything we have a we have a set of normal expectations in this cartulary of how the scribe was working and when something deviates from the norm is when i get really excited because then i'm kind of like wait a minute what's going on here this is not usual and then a little bit further research you can find um questions as well as answers as to what was going on
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's very cool so we've been we've been chatting for quite a while and I want to see if Lindsay has any questions for you guys before we, before we finish up. What is the strangest thing that you ran across in
2: this cartulary? It's a good question. I think one of the strangest things I've run across in this cartulary I have no answer for this, (laughs) but what I find very strange is that the cartulary, as we've seen, is a very sort of bland book. There's no illumination. It's very sort of workaday kind of look to it. Even the binding is very, you know, um, workaday. It's not super, super special. And yet, something that we haven't mentioned yet, but um, yet there are three small little cartularies associated with Prémontré, and each of those is about half the size. It belongs to one of the dependent houses, so at some point they had a project going where they were going to give a little small cartulary to each of the dependent houses that sort of exists in the cartulary, the large cartulary, and Those have these illuminated initials. They are, um, they, the script is a little bit fancier. Um, and it's just, it's it's just, it looks like there's a little bit more effort that's gone into it. The parchment is of better quality than the parchment you see in the large cartulary. And to me, I find this very strange. I find this strange. Why would you have your major cartulary belonging at the Abbey? less, what appears to us, I say, you know, as a a lesser uh, quality or lesser.
1: Less ornamental.
2: Less ornamental. Yeah. Yeah. Cartillary than these smaller ones that you are going to perhaps distribute to the houses, maybe not, maybe keep at the Abbey, but that are not as important As the larger one, which really creates a sense of identity and really brings Prémontré together in the mid-13th century as a house and as the mother abbey of an entire order. So I just find, I find that very strange. I don't know if I'll ever have an answer to that. It keeps me awake at night.
1: There's a weird... Well, if that's the worst thing that's keeping you awake like, at night, I suppose you're not doing too badly. Um, the, it, but there is, yeah, I, I agree. There's a weird tension between the the fact that this seems to have been made as a power move, right, in a sense, right? This right. assertion of power and control and and uh, Premontra's place in the hierarchy compared to the other Premonstratensian houses. And yet there are certainly far more lavish cartularies out there than this one. Um, there's many ways in which it's never, it doesn't seem to have ever been quite fully finished. Right. Uh, So a lot of the initial letters and individual um, charters are are never actually filled in. So if you look Mm -hmm. um, even right on that that page where the um, ink spot uh, is, um, Mm -hmm. you can see that little space was left um, at the beginning of, pretty much each act for someone to come in and do one of those, those beautiful um, pen work initials later. And that never happened. Mm. So why, why was it not quite finished? Why, like there's clearly a whole bunch of context that we are missing that would help us to understand what this manuscript was made Mm. for, how it was being used the context within which it was created. Um, so I, I share Heather's like continued fascination with that. For me, I think one of the stranger things in it is not necessarily um, so much a, a facet of the cartular as an object, Is just kind of one of the, the things that gets described in it because I, um, Every time I I reread the text, I imagine what it would have been like to be in this particular scenario. And that's the case involving a woman called Mathilde, um, who was a a parishioner who lived in a a, a small town called Cousy or a village called Cousy, not so far from Premontre. Um, and Prémontré disputed with a nearby abbey called Nogent as to which of the two of them had the rights to bury the parishioners from those towns and this was you know, a thing that not only gave you a certain amount of spiritual power but also every time that you buried someone you, you got a little got a little something in return right so this could be yeah. a valuable economic right um, and there is this long dispute that runs between um, Nogent and Cousy uh, sorry Nogent and Prémontré as to where people from the village of Coussy should be buried. Um, traditionally, Nogent had had the right, but Mathilde had wanted to be buried at Prémantré. She seemed to have just had a preference for it. Um, so there's this whole kind of grappling as to whether or not this poor woman should be dug up <laughs> and
2: brought <laughs>
1: somewhere else um, oh and gosh. which had the right. So eventually, they they uh, came to an agreement, and and poor Mathilde got to stay where she was. But every time I look at the the kind of the the set of texts around her particular case, I imagine like her poor family. I, I presume that are like gosh, they they might want to dig up Grandma. You know, is not uh, <laughs> it's not a fun thing to contemplate. But it it is another reminder of that kind of intersection of average everyday lives and like big. Uh, institutions jockeying for power in the middle ages um, that i think create these kind of yeah strange but weird and wonderful little moments um in history that you can glimpse that are are really human and yeah a little bit strange
0: yeah mm-hmm. any great
1: other, any other questions or how about you dot
0: i mean we could ask we can ask the usual ending question mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh which is—is is it okay if I ask? This yes. is, Lin- I think, of this is this, Lindsay's question, this but is my question. But yes, you ask it this time. So. <laughs> okay, so for both of you, if you could have some one-on-one time in person with any manuscript, uh, maybe one that you haven't already uh, spent some time with, what manuscript would you choose, and why?
1: For me, as a good Irish woman I've got to say the book of Kells I think that's an excellent Um, you know (laughs) because that's uh, like I have I have seen it but I have only seen it behind glass and the kind of page at a time thing Um, I would just I would love to kind of just be able to turn the pages and look at those illustrations up close and personal they are such a part of Irish um, history right and art history but also later Irish culture, um, the the Gaelic revival movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries really drew on those beautiful uh, illuminations to create artistic motifs um, that you can see um, very much around you in, in Irish life even today. Um, even the the nuns who taught me in primary school, they would give us like little books of kells, coloring pages, to uh, <laughs> to work on. I would, of course, not have marker pen anywhere near the actual manuscripts if I ever. <laughs> of course, I'm not not. near it. I'm a, I'm a very diligent <laughs> researcher, um, but yeah, it, it would just be f- fascinating, I think, to get a sense of it as an object because, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with the images, but um, mm-hmm. there is something about being able to. You know, pick up the 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 oh, ob- yeah. object, right, and get a sense of its its weight, mm. and um, and this always sounds weird to people who are not medievalists, but it's smell. Um, mm-hmm. you know, manuscripts have a smell. Sometimes you come out of the archives right in the evening, and you can like, your hands your are just, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, fourteenth <laughs> century, right? <laughs> All the non-medievalists are listening to this in horror, um, <laughs> and then I go wash my hands, you know, yeah. but uh, but there is something about that that tactile element of it, and and yeah. I think the Book of Kells would be my choice.
0: Yeah.
2: Okay, I have an answer to this. And it's not really an answer to the question. Okay. But it's kind of an answer. It's the, you know, what would you, if you could, part that makes me say, what I want to do <laughs> is I want to travel back in time to a room in which one of the charters that was made or one of those transactions actually took place that you know has ended up in this cartulary, where it actually took place. And I want to see, I just want to be a fly on the wall, and I want to see who's there. I want to see the process in which the entire writing up of the transaction is performed I want to see every little bit about it and then I actually want to see the piece of paper the piece of parchment that um that that is written on or the many pieces of parchment that is written on at that time and then be able to come back to the 21st century and look at that piece of parchment again and say oh wow that's what happened for you to get here (laughs) So that's sorry, it's a little bit off the question, but anyway.
0: No, that's a fantastic answer. We haven't gotten any kind of answer. Usually people are like, oh, I can't possibly choose one. So kudos <laughs> to Yvonne for just being able to say <laughs> right off the bat. But I like that. That's a very good creative answer, Heather. I like yeah, I like really. it a lot. Um and I think with that, we're going to say thank you again for coming on to talk about the
2: cartulary. Thank and you for You're very welcome. It was an absolute pleasure. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you for listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com. And there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.